Spoiler alert! It's Geek Top 5! Yay! And there are five cool things going on in the world of geeks that have been passed down to us to distribute to you. Number five on our list for this week, uh, Minority Report is real. So, that's cool. <laughs> Apparently it's been going on for since at least 2008 in some form or, or another. Yeah, this, this came out... Um, in New, or- New Orleans, uh, how does the Simpsons song go? It, well, got, they got sued eventually for that, so never mind. Um, but not the safest city in the world. But in 2013, they had a major bust, uh, broke up a bunch of gangs, and just found out recently that a big part of that was thanks to the help of predictive policing. Which, And this is the important part of the story. It, it wasn't kept secret, it just not a lot of people knew about it, and they didn't want anyone to find out. <laughs> And that's completely different. Oh, obviously, yes. So, God, where do you even start with this nightmare? So this is a company called Palantir, which is awesome. Like, they get some points for that automatically. <laughs> Less awesome when you realize that it's, it's, a, it's basically a venture capital startup from the CIA. Uh, and this, it, you know when people tell you about, like, you know, worry about your privacy. You don't know what they're using that data for. That's what this is for. Palantir has this program that they field tested, like in the Middle East, wartime, by the way, that they ran in New Orleans to predict crime. This, this is the precogs, but yeah. using Skynet instead of like three captive, squishy, naked psychics. <laughs> I can't remember, I can't find it now, but there was something, oh, here it is, uh, in, there was a three year pilot somewhere else called Precobs, Pre Crime Observation System. So. Yeah, we all know yeah. what it is. This. <laughs> Thing takes it, it, it takes everything. It uses geography, it uses criminal records, it uses your social media history, it uses the weather, it uses your ties to other people. It, it puts it all together and says, probably pretty likely that this guy's going to shoot someone today. And then the cops head out. And now, to be fair, as far as I know, they haven't arrested anyone before they've done a crime, right? Well, as far as you know, as that's the fun part. Mm. The New Orleans Police Department has been using this system, like, they made the busts in 2013, so they were using it even sooner, and just now, people are starting to find out about it, and this, this comes from, this was like a, a major investigative report from The Verge, as one of the websites that we use, where we, we rely on them for some of our news, and they talked to, like, themselves, to a bunch of people over there, like, politicians and city officials, none of whom had any idea this was happening. And that brings up some very interesting questions about liability and about rights and about essentially the same issues that the movie Minority Report (laughs) dealt with, except then it wasn't real. Right. Well, I think that uh, the fact that they're using freely available information as well as information they already have in their crime databases makes it somewhat okay. Like, it's not, they're not, they're not hacking into anyone's accounts. as far so far anyway to get extra information about them it's all stuff that's already out there and they're just using it to as a predictive tool i've noticed in reading about this is that the statistics of it versus of any of these pre-crimes predicting things the statistics of it versus real policing it's it's slightly better it's not hugely better i'm not sure it's worth the the investment that uh, the slight uptick in in number of successful arrest uh, warrants, you know what I mean? I know what you mean, and it's also then you have to consider, like, you also have to consider, like, what happens at that point? Like, let's say that this thing predicts that you, Graham, you're going to shoot somebody. Uh, I guess They're me. on to me. I'm the, only other, I'm the only one in the room, so you're <laughs> going to shoot me. 
And so the cops just come by and are just watching through the window while we record the podcast, just in case. Mm-hmm. That weirds me out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. And one of the other big criticisms of it is that it relies on information that is already in the police systems, and all of that information could have the human bias in it already of of uh, racial discrimination yeah. or and economic that, discrimination. And that came up in the article. Those same biases are being reproduced. Right. Now, there's a lot of layered, complex reasons where the numbers come from, but yeah, a lot of the people targeted in that bust, they weren't middle-class white Protestant people. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of reasons for that, but yeah, it's nerve-wracking. But like, this is handing over that kind of law enforcement to... You know, just Skynet. And, but, um, like, how far can you go on a maybe? Yeah. yeah, honestly, it just seems like this is the first step. And right now it's not very effective, but the longer it's in use, it's going to get more effective. And how, at what point do we just hand full control over it to the, the system, to this computer system? And then how long before the police are just doing exactly what the system tells them? It's like Minority Report. It's also like... Oh, I can't remember the name of that show that, that ended recently with Jim Caviezel, and it was also about a crime-predicting computer and mm. dangers inherent. But yeah, but we all use computers every day. We know that you have to take everything they say with a grain of salt. Because they're they, all built by humans, and you have to take everything a human says with a grain of salt. Yeah, but you, know, you tend to rely on... Like, there's always that funny story like, of the guy who like, followed his GPS's instructions and drove into a lake. Right. Like, that really happened. Yeah. So, like, they got it on video, so I'm schmuck. <laughs> Was paying so much attention to like to to the you know at the next left to, like and he drove into a lake mm-hmm. because he was just figured I can trust the computer and you can't you can't you have to apply your own common sense but if like well, the worst case scenario happens you know something like in Minority Report where it turns out the prediction was it wasn't just the prediction was wrong the prediction was faked spoiler alert I said it at the beginning of the show. <laughs> It's like, then what do you do? Who do you blame? Like, you can't send the computer system back to be retrained or fired. I don't know. It's terrifying. And if we give too much control to the system, then it's not a matter of just being like, well, it's being corrupted. We can't use it anymore. Let's go back to police. Because the police aren't going to have any uh, detecting skills anymore, right? Like, if everything is reliant on the computer, and maybe maybe we're just going too far in our dystopian outlook on the future. Maybe this is never going to happen. But I feel like as police budgets get smaller or tighter, especially in small towns, there's going to be more and more of a reliance mm-hmm. on things like this. And you want to talk about dystopian. Another interesting facet of the story, surprising nobody, is that the company, Palantir, like, has called this philanthropic work. Like, they were just there to help. But they've also used it as part of their portfolio, and they've sold, like, using this as an example, they're selling their system to militaries and to, like, multi They've made multi-million dollars in Europe as a result of this philanthropic work. Right, and in North America, there are strong laws that would tend to stop people from using it for more nefarious purposes, at least overtly. But if it gets into the hands of... A dictatorship or something like that where they need to track down dissidents. Imagine this thing in the Philippines right now. Right. right? Yeah. So that's terrifying. And that is essentially the the last word on that. They're a big CIA-backed zillion-dollar company. What can you do? All right. Let's move on from this. It's too depressing. Yeah. uh, Moving on from real dystopian to fake dystopias. (laughs) (laughs) But not as fake as I want it to be, really, when you look around these days. Fahrenheit 451 is getting a movie. 
it's an originally a novel by Ray Bradbury that came out in 1953. There's already been at least one film adaptation and video games. It's been it's definitely a major part of the zeitgeist, and it's uh, it's it's a great novel. Yeah, it's a bedrock of modern science fiction. A, a futuristic world, at least as futuristic is from the perspective of 1953. Right. Uh, when I read the novel relatively recently, it didn't feel quite so futuristic as it just felt like the present. Yeah. So, props to Ray Bradbury. <laughs> Seriously, though, as an aside, props to Ray Bradbury. He's written a lot. Some of Good my favorite him. books. Yeah. yeah. But no, so Fahrenheit 451, uh, the, the highlight of this world is it's a dystopian future where books are not only banned, but they have firemen whose job it is to find and burn books. And like you know, so this is a like government control media thing, and the main character Guy Montag, maybe Guy Montag. I always said Guy, but it's because I was raised in Canada. Uh, <laughs> main character G Montag is a fireman who sort of has an awakening. He meets a weird, precocious little girl who tells him about how people used to think for themselves and stuff, and he starts to see the flaws in his dystopian society and turns against it. It is a book about censorship and a book about. Control, control, and government, yeah. and a, a book that made a lot of awkward points um, that have a lot of reflection on things that are happening today. One of the revelations in the story is that the way that books got banned—it like wasn't a government crackdown; it's that people got bored of books. And the sort of nemesis character, like the way he describes it, he describes how books were burned first by every minority group, each ripping a page or a paragraph from this book and then that, until the day came when the books were empty and the minds shut and the libraries closed forever. He talks about how, you know, maybe you want to add more of this kind of character to the story or rewrite the story to be more fair to this social demographic or that sort of thing, and how eventually they ended up being nothing and worthless. Which is a super, is such a touchy subject that I'm already doubling back on what I just said because I'm worried I might have offended somebody. Right. So, couldn't be a more philosophically interesting time for this to come out. And a modern take on this, it's going to be hitting a lot closer to home than it did in the 1950s when it was some crazy future that could never happen. It's interesting that this is uh, being made for HBO, and I think will be exclusively available on that as opposed to going to theaters, because it's got a very theatrical movie-type cast with Michael B. Jordan, who was recently in Black Panther and uh, was in Fruitvale Station and the lamented Fantastic Four movie. And Let's go with Black Panther. Sure. It was great in Black Panther. And Michael Shannon, who is probably best known as Zod from uh, Man of Steel, but has been in a ton of great stuff. Great actor. Uh, so they're, they're the sort of people you'd expect to see on the big screen. And HBO, at least in my experience, when they do movies, they're usually smaller and more topical, or they're biopics or of recent history. This seems like uh, something that's branched out. It seems like something that might be more likely to end up on Netflix or an Amazon or in, in on the big screen. So it's an interesting place for HBO to be going. Uh, the rest of the cast is interesting, too. Sophia Boutella, who was the mummy in the mummy movie and was the alien in Star Trek Beyond. And, yeah. and this is the most interesting casting. Lily Singh, who is like the queen of YouTube. She goes by Super Woman, and she had, uh, she's had she got millions of followers. She's done headlined concerts around the world. Oh, my God. I'm so world. old. Yeah, I'm so about old. It. She's also from Toronto, so she's in the movie as a... Blogger who is going to be on all these screens. So it's just like, I don't know how much of a stretch of the acting will be for her. But it's interesting that they've taken 
her and put her in this this big budget movie. And it, uh, it seems pretty clear they're trying to incorporate, you know, sort of today how it works yeah. to help with that commentary. Definitely so that, updating it a bit uh, to make it more. I mean, as as relevant as the original novel is. By making it about tabloid vloggers and things like that, adding that element to it just adds it to the current day reality. Yeah, I mean, it is a, it is amazing how accurate some of his predictions were. But like one of the you know most amazing and simultaneously horrifying like technology things from the original story are essentially Apple AirPods. Mm. It's, it's that his like it's his wife and people in this world are always listening to something. Like, instead of paying attention to each other. It's like, yes, I get it, and that is, but that's like, we've already accepted that. Yeah, it's, now it feels like, all right, all right, you're hammering me over the head with it. It's a, you're hitting too close to home. Yeah. Whereas back then, it was probably the wildest reaches of sci-fi. It was ludicrous. I'm sure it will be coming out in the next couple of months. All right, we'll see it. We'll see if it, uh, if it happens to get banned. I mean, the original novel is still as recently as 2006, and people were asking to pull it from schools. Yeah. A book about burning books and they try. It's, it's a whole thing you should look into it if you haven't read it it's a great read we'll see what HBO does with it number three on the list uh, from dystopian reality to what's the opposite of reality uh, As, fantasy to dystopian fantasy I was going to say the dream honestly it's not a bad yeah. description I don't know that I would call this dystopian but go on well it's bizarre so Neil Gaiman's Sandman is I want to say Sandman comics and that's I feel like that's doing them a disservice. Sandman is a graphic novel. I by saying that you're insulting comics. I, I am. Take umbrage at that, sir. But the difference between Sandman and Civil War Two. Sure. Know? It's it's definitely a mature graphic novel. It is a mature, award winning graphic novel and that not had like, mature in the sense of like nudity and, and swear words. It's mature in that it's meant for an adult mature reader. Yeah. Uh, 1989 to 1993. I'm sure we've talked about it on the show before. It's great. If you have it's, it's it's Neil Gaiman at his finest. It's honestly the launching pad of Neil Gaiman's career. I would say. Yeah. Uh, it's it's fantastic. 75 issues. Uh, just this brilliant arc. Uh, the art is really hit and miss, but that's not necessarily Neil Gaiman's fault. He's he's just the writer. But it's a brilliant story. He's come back to that universe a few times since the series ended with graphic novels or a recent miniseries that was a. Uh, prelude to it, sort of like a, a prequel. Which are okay. Yeah, I like the, the prelude a lot. Actually, I like the graphic novel a lot, too, although it was sort of a bit hit and miss since it was several stories about the different members of The Endless. We're getting into the weeds yeah. here. Why are we talking about it, besides the fact that it's awesome, um, is that it's... A, it's is it the 30th anniversary? Is that Yeah, I think it's... we're heading into the 30th anniversary yeah. of its initial release. And so... You know, we're always talking on the show how people want to get in on that shared universe money. They're making the Sandman shared universe. But the uh, interesting thing to me from a comic book perspective is this is yet another of these DC imprints where they're giving creators, special creators, their own little corner of the universe that's just theirs and they can do what they want in it. We've already got Gerard Way, former frontman for My Chemical Romance. He's got the... I, I believe it's the Young Animal line where it's four titles and he controls them. Mm-hmm. He writes a few of them. He just shepherds the other ones. Brian Michael Bendis has one in the works as well. And now Neil Gaiman, is, is he's not going to be writing any of these, but he's the brains behind it. He's going to be the guiding principle of, of all these other comics. Yeah, he's going to be the Nick Fury. It's Oh, no, it's DC. Um, who's Nick Fury in DC? I don't know that they have one. Maybe Amanda Waller. Okay, he's the Amanda... Oh, wow. <laughs> he's going to be the Amanda Waller of these. He's got four other authors. 
each of whom are going to be working with him on a Sandman universe number one, to, like introduce this new world, and then they're branching off into four different titles, uh, essentially to explore this this shared universe. Uh, who are these people? I got uh, Nalo Hopkinson, Cat Howard, Cy Spurrier, and Dan Waters. We're going to be writing The House of Whispers, uh, Books of Magic, The Dreaming, and Lucifer. How, how um, in-depth do you want me to go on describing these? Well, we only have a, like, a little <laughs> bit of time. Books of Magic, very unfortunate cover. but I mean, They've already done a little bit of it, but it looks very much like Harry Potter. It came, it came first. Yeah, it came first. <laughs> but in fact, if, Neil Gaiman has been asked if he thinks J.K. Rowling stole the idea from him. And he's... Very politely said, no, it's just, we have similar ideas. Yeah, so that one's going to be about Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) What a jerk. (laughs) The House of Whispers, uh, that's Hopkinson's, is about, I don't even remember this character from the Sandman, am I crazy? The voodoo deity Erzuli. That's, as far as I know, that's new. Okay. But there's two other houses in the Dreaming that are based on right. titles that existed prior to the Sandman comics. It's House of Mystery and House of Secrets. And they, in the original comics, it was sort of like a Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt Keeper sort of thing, where Cain was the host of one of them and Abel was the host of the other. Right, I remember and that. It, that was a good story. Right. And then the Sandman comics, they were actually the Cain and Abel characters and they interacted and they're they're part of the dreaming so this is a new house and that she's going to interact with them but have her own sort of stories as well right so we got that one we've got harry potter we have not harry potter all right we have the dreaming uh which is lucian the librarian he's a librarian of uh, a library of books that were only dreamed of so it's it's a cool concept it's like such a nerdy cool concept it's like Titles by Hemingway or, or Edgar Allan Poe that you never actually saw, but they dreamed them, and they're in this this bookshelf, in this library. In this it's, world. It's a like great a... concept. And then there's Matthew the Raven, who's also with Lucien right. in that. Right, right. Who's a character in the later issues of Sandman, I believe. And then the last one is Lucifer. Uh, that's Waters. Um, which is about Lucifer living on Earth, which is... Was that a TV series? It still is. It still is a TV series. That's drawn from the same source material? Yep, yep. I am behind on my research. So Lucifer was a character who appeared in the comics. One of my favorite storylines in the Sandman uh, comics where Lucifer has decided to shut down Hell and he's retiring from it. And he, at one point, he moves to Earth and... Then there was a separate comic by a different writer, Mike Carey, took over, and he did a long run on the character just being a guy on Earth. Lucifer is just living on Earth, and that is what the TV show is based on. So it's sort of like the continuing adventures of that character, although there's a new twist to it. Mm -hmm. Um, We could go on about these for a long time. It's uh, Essentially, they're they're cashing in their Sandman ships. Um, Like we said, they've done some other spin-off stuff before, and they hit and miss. Some I liked, some I didn't. But any opportunity to return to that world and return to Dream or Morpheus or Sandman, whatever you call it. Daniel. Daniel. (laughs) Whatever you want to call it is, I think, like, everyone is jazz, but it's going to be one of those things that has to be done just right. And we'll have to see what they end up doing. Yeah, I hope... I mean, it seems like one of the things DC is doing now is they're doubling down on some of their big properties that they've been more hands-off with until recently. Under the previous regime, Watchmen was a no-go. You just didn't touch it. Uh, Sandman was only used in specific contexts. Mm -hmm. Now, with the new people involved, they're like, why aren't we using these characters? So, Watchmen, they had all the before Watchmen comics that came out and created controversy, and now the Watchmen characters are being integrated into the DC Universe proper. And I feel like with Sandman, they probably... I mean, 
this is speculation, but I feel like they told Neil Gaiman, hey, we're going to be doing this st- stuff with these characters, whether you're involved or not. So if you want to be involved, speak up now. Otherwise, we're just doing it anyway. That's, that's harsh, but I can see that happening. It's true. So it's good that he's involved. We'll see where it goes. I'm a little nervous, but always excited to get back there. Number two on our list. Uh, speaking of properties, holy cow, Amazon went crazy. Yeah, I mean, recently they said that Jeff uh, Bezos, the owner of Amazon, is has now topped the list as, like, the wealthiest man in the world. If he keeps doing stuff like this, he's not going to stay at the top yeah, of the list for much longer. Like, I, he's not going to be able to join the Golden Yacht Club, I guess, <laughs> because they are spending that money. Amazon, their television service is probably best known as being the television service that doesn't have Game of Thrones. Well... There are a lot of television services like that, but they don't. But that's—I mean, what else do they got? They've <laughs> right? got yeah, I mean, the, what I they their highest-profile stuff is Bosch, which is based on this detective series. Whoa! Have you ever heard of it? No. And Man in the High Castle, which is based on the Philip K. Dick stuff, it's very critically acclaimed, but not many people seem to be watching it. They also have The Tick. Again, I've heard a lot about it. Haven't heard a lot of people watching it. Yeah. What they did, we talked about this recently, is they bought the license. They want to make Lord of the Rings TV show. Very exciting. Very cool. Very clear they want some of that Game of Thrones money. But I guess they're nervous that it might not work out. So just in case, they bought everything else. Everything. They, in an offside, they also mentioned, oh yeah, we also bought and want to make television show for The Dark Tower, for The Wheel of Time, for Ringworld, and for Lazarus, and for Snow Crash. And beyond that, they've already got stuff in the works for Good Omens, The Boys, Hannah, based on the movie Hannah, which right. sort of came and went, but I enjoyed. Uh, Conan, Galaxy Quest, they've got everything. Which, so how do we cram this into one podcast? There's So the Dark Tower is Stephen King's epic fantasy. I don't think we know if it's going to be a continuation of the movie or if they're just going to start fresh. Uh, did you, yeah, you didn't see the movie. Trust me, it's not going to continue from the movie. Right. They're going to wipe that right under the rug. <laughs> uh, it's seven or nine books, depending how you count it, uh, starting in 1982 with The Gunslinger. It's great. It's Stephen King at his finest. It's like Stephen King's... Avengers, in a way, as a lot of his properties come together into this epic fantasy novel, which is often referred to as Stephen King's Lord of the Rings. So they got that. They got The Wheel of Time, started in 1990 by Robert Jordan, finished off by Brendan Sanderson. Fourteen books. Honestly, Robert Jordan's editor was also his wife. It could have been seven books. <laughs> it's just, I, it's but, a, I'll, it's well, an, another... I find it almost better if it's something that wasn't great as a book, and then they can try and take the best parts and make it better Maybe. in an adaptation. It's, it's got some fantastic parts. It's an epic high fantasy, swords and sorcery and magic and you know ancient demons and he- destined heroes. I'm that kind already of thing. falling asleep. I know. <laughs> uh, we've got Ringworld, a 1970s sci-fi novel by Larry Niven. That's nine books. This seems that one seems sort of low profile compared to some of these other things. It's, yeah, I would say that it's a huge thing for sci-fi dorks. Okay. Uh, the thing most of folks, I think, listening to this podcast will recognize it from is it's very clearly the inspiration for the Halo series of video games, mm. uh, both in terms of the fact that there is a literal ring world, but also there are adventures on it. And like, you go, so sci-fi, discover this crazy planet shaped like an artificial ring, and there's an ancient civilization that used to be there, but now they're not. What happened? Adventure, mystery. We got that. I, I hate that we have to go through these so fast. We got Lazarus, which is a dystopian sci-fi comic book by Greg Rucka. 
Which hey. is hey, there's somebody you know. I do know him. Lazarus <laughs> is great. <laughs> Lazarus is great, um, and it's a very rich world. I've only read the first trade of it, but man, even in that first collection of, of five issues, I think you already can tell how deep a world it is. It's post-apocalyptic. It's post-apocalyptic, or I guess we're not entirely sure. It's, it's a weird future. Yeah, where it's one where corporations are the equal, if not better, than countries. Yeah, they're like rival families. It's very feudal. Yeah. Um, you got to keep moving. There's just so many. Snow Crash uh, by Neil Stevenson from 1992. It's, it's cyberpunk, but also kind of a parody of cyberpunk. Yeah, um, I read it, didn't love it, but I'm not big on cyberpunk. It's so you know, there's it's a you know, the corporations rule the world, but there's a virtual reality internet you can go into. But then they find a way they're going to use that to like hack people's brains. It's funny that so many of these seem to have an anti-corporation bent to it, and yet Amazon is slowly becoming one of the biggest corporations in the world. Yeah, the monopoly of anti-corporations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun. Uh, they're apparently going to spend a trillion, vigintillion dollars and try to make all the television shows and try to get in on that. Just try to find at least one show that everybody wants to watch. Yeah, hopefully they can find something that will rival Netflix or, or HBO, but... Uh... I mean, power to them. I'm all for there being more good television. The problem is... But... Quantity versus quality. Yeah, yeah. If you're you're throwing this much at the wall to see what sticks... What ends up sticking may not be as good as the stuff on HBO where they can really tightly focus and make one thing really good. Yeah. Good luck to them. Um, I want to go into detail on so many of these because they're all worth looking into. If you haven't heard of any of these, you should go check them out because they're all really cool franchises. Especially Galaxy Quest. Well, yeah, especially Galaxy <laughs> Quest. I was, I was going to say maybe not Wheel of Time. I mean, I loved it and I think I'm better to buy it, but those are long books. Those are 14 long books, man. I'm sure the closer these things come to becoming a reality, the more we'll be able to talk about them individually. That's fair. So more on that as we go. <laughs> Number one on our list, and a little bit uh, from, from our last show where we unfortunately didn't get to get it out to you guys, Lost in Space. Just like the new segment of that podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got two things of Lost in Space. Everyone I talk to is either super excited or completely apathetic and nothing in between. Um, Lost in Space, Irwin Allen's 1960s sci-fi series. It's the sci-fi series my mom watched growing up. It was often pitted against uh, Star Trek in that they were both sci-fi series, but... Star Trek was a good one. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, I don't want to put it like that, but Star Trek was the more serious one. And as it went on, Lost in Space became more and more campy, which... Probably saved it because it was that was a big part of the the late sixties with the Adam West Batman and things like that. That yeah. worked at that time. I don't know that it would work so well these days. A campy take on sci-fi, but we've seen now that that's not what they're doing. Um, we got one trailer that didn't show much of anything, and then another trailer that just wouldn't seem to end. Almost if they as if someone told them that, that first trailer didn't have anything into it. But in such quick succession, too. Usually, yeah, really, like yeah. a week apart. Not not like Han Solo, where it was literally a day apart, but still pretty quick. <laughs> like these millennials, they just need everything right away <laughs> yeah. these days, you know. No, so this is, I mean, to be fair, this isn't the first reboot of the series. In 1998, it had a financially successful, critically panned movie. With Matt uh, LeBlanc Matt and LeBlanc Gary Oldman. And William Hurt. Yeah. Um, it was awful. And it, then there was a 2004 pilot that was made, directed by John Woo, uh, and that didn't get anywhere beyond just the pilot stage. But now we've got this. It's coming out April 13th. 
this 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 series looks like it, it costs them so much money because it looks the production values are through the roof. Yeah, it definitely. It, it's weird saying this because. Battlestar Galactica came out what like fifteen years ago, but it definitely feel like, feels like that's a strong influence on this. Yeah, and I think until something else surpasses the success of, of BSG, that's going to be the touch point that a lot of things refer to. But man, I, I got that vibe very much from this. Same thing with the Martian. I, there, there was certain there was a certain Martianiness to it, mm. maybe in the just the the orange. Uh, in fact, there were orange spacesuits. That might be part of it, but. But we see we see the Swiss family Robinson. They get lost in space on their flying saucer. You see Dr. Smith is a woman now, but yeah. still seems to be like have weird like other intentions. Yeah, we don't get uh, much of a taste of her, but she's played by Parker Posey, who is a great actress. I'm looking forward to seeing what she can do mm-hmm. with this role. But she seems to sort of be like the the antagonist. A, yeah, a as bit. usual. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we see the robot, who's not the goofy robot from the old series, and this one it looks like they find the, like an alien robot. Yeah, usually the robot is with them on the ship, or you know, he's connected with the family. Yeah, somehow. he's basically Rosie from the Jetsons. <laughs> right? I'm not sure which of those came first, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, but but in this case, this is a spooky alien robot yeah. with stars for a face and is claws he, for hands. Is he good? Is he bad? We're not sure. Yeah. But he seems to make friends with with. Will Robinson. But he also per- seems to make friends with the Dr. Smith. True. Will Robinson is a precocious youth. Go mm-hmm. figure. The sister is sarcastic because she's a teenager. They're two sisters. They're two sisters. You're right. Penny and... Uh... Uh, but it's essentially... It is a, you know, a, a space opera. It's going to be about the tensions in this family thrust into a whole new situation, trying to figure out how to survive. We see them, we see all kinds of horrible things that's happened to their ship. We see it sinking, we see them trying to drag it out of the mud, we see it. That was one of the interesting things about the trailer that I... I, that really struck me. It seems like there's tons of different environments, and usually in sci-fi, a different environment needs, means a different planet. So are they going to different planets, or is this just one of those rare sci-fi planets where we actually see different climates? Yeah, yeah right. This is actually topology. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah, not like the Star Wars worlds at all. No. <laughs> uh, who knows? Um, but what we've seen looks very cool and very exciting and very tonally different from the original show, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, if you're going to do a serious take on it, this seems to be a good way to do it from from what we've seen. Yeah. I, I also want to talk about some of the other cast. There's Molly Parker, who's a Canadian actress. She was in Deadwood and uh, Men with Brooms, and she's she's been around. She plays the mom on it. Toby Stevens, who is the son of Dame uh, Maggie Smith. And he was in Black Sails, a pirate series recently, and he was also in Die Another Day. He's the, the father. And uh, it's going to be directed, the pilot and some of the other episodes uh, will be directed by Neil Marshall, who directed my favorite horror movie, The Descent. If you've never seen it, oh, so good. So I'm excited to see what he can do on, on a show like this. So they got the names, they got the money, they got the cool tone. I mean, it's Netflix, right? Like, we've learned to trust these guys for a lot of stuff. It's, yeah. Uh, Right, poor Amazon. There's a comparison. <laughs> yeah, it, they, Netflix still hasn't quite nailed movies, uh, as you can see with Bright, amongst other things. Mm-hmm. But, but TV, TV shows, series, they know what they're doing. We're on board. We're on board the ship to get lost in space. Again, it's coming April 13th. So that's the news as we saw it this time around. We'll be right back with our special guest segment as Geek Top 5. Please stay tuned. Welcome to the second half of Geek Top 5. 
This week, we're joined by a, a past guest, Mr. Brad Dworkin, and he's here to talk to us about his new uh, web series. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Hey, I'm doing great, thanks. Sweet. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, long-time listener and, of course, past guest. Loved my, loved my time, so I just had to come back. Long-time listener, second-time caller. I guess you don't have a phone, but yeah, that's, that's me. Um, so thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm here to hawk my wares. No, uh, please. Like, like we've, we've got a list. We've got some cool stuff we want to talk about. But in addition to all your cool director's credits, it's, you've got new stuff coming out. Looks pretty red. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, so what I've done is basically there's this crazy like battle royale, Hunger Games esque fight for money, which is like it feels very Canadian. Is there's only a small <laughs> amount of money to fight for, and we're all coming after it. So I've made a trailer for a web series uh, idea that I had. Uh, the only thing that exists is the trailer. The show does not exist, and the more people that watch it and check it out and get interested and like it, the more likely we are to actually get money. So this is my my pitch to you to. Come check out the trailer for my show. It's called Bricks Without Clay, which is a reference to uh, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, he says, data, 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 I can't make bricks without clay. Now, just to clarify, in terms of getting money, you mean money to produce the show. Money, not to, like... money to make the whole rest of the show. Yeah. Right, so, not okay. just like for a bar. So, no, yeah. that would be cool. But, um, <laughs> yeah, basically, everyone who worked on this program, on making this trailer, worked for free, volunteered their time, and I'd like to be able to pay them, and I'd like to be able to do this for real. Tell us a little bit about the show. So, Bricks Without Clay is uh, it's a comedy. It's basically me thinking, like, I wonder what it would be like to work at Netflix. Right. To be looking at all the data of what everybody's watching and all the, the information that they have about all their subscribers and then use that to try and make a show. So they're, they're rebooting something based on what everybody's watching on the service. The problem is all their code is messed up. So they're making a reboot of a movie that is actually really terrible. Uh, but they can't not do it because the data says it's going to be amazing. So it's, it's what do you do when the data tells you something bad is good? It's the emperor's new clothes. Right. Nobody wants to admit the data could be wrong. This sounds like every day of my life professionally. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go watch the trailer for Bricks Without Clay. Like it and subscribe to it, please, if it's something you're interested in. Now let's talk about this list. Where can people go to see it? YouTube. Go to YouTube, search Bricks Without Clay. You will find it. And I'm oh. sure it's also on Facebook. Yes. Facebook.com slash Bricks Without Clay. Awesome. All right. Inspired by the idea of making a movie about making a movie about making a movie. Uh, uh, we've lost it. That's yeah. it. I Met- got trapped meta. in a loop. <laughs> yeah, meta narratives. So basically, my idea for the list was five movies that are about making movies. Uh, and my top five, anyway. All right. So let's hit. What's number five on the list? Sure. Yeah. So uh, number five is Bowfinger. Oh, Bowfinger. This is one of those like underseen gems. Right? I don't know how we saw it, but I remember seeing it a lot in high school. I think we all saw it at those rain- the Rainbow Theaters in the right. little mall <laughs> near our high school. Yeah, yeah, definitely saw this one in cinemas back when people used to actually go to cinemas for the most part. Um, Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, Heather Graham, uh, Christine Baranski, you may know from The Good Wife, who is... And The Good Fight. Amazing. Yeah, that's right. The Good Fight as well. That's her, her show now. Uh, and it's basically, what if you make a movie... With a big name star, and that star does not actually know they're in the movie. Uh, so <laughs> they they are making a film. They are they they throw actors at him with hidden cameras, and they're they're trying to like get him to say the dialogue they need him to say. They're trying to improv him into being in this movie, un, completely unwittingly. Uh, to take down a Scientology as well. Yeah, I didn't realize that at all right. when I was a kid. <laughs> no, yeah, that went over my head. It wasn't until I kind of looked back when preparing for the show. I was like, oh yeah, like the thing is called Mindhead. 
is like his like crazy cult thing. So of course it's like an action movie, and they're like the aliens are coming, and of course he totally buys it because he's yeah. part of because he's a Scientologist. He's a Scientologist, so of course hey, the aliens are coming. Let's not get on any list, guys. Scientology's great, and we don't have any beef with it. Please don't come after us. The movie clearly did have a beef, though. Let's say that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <okay>. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, there's certainly. There's also, I mean, another aspect of it is uh, Heather Graham's character is based on Anne Heche. And uh, Aunt Steve Martin had been in a relationship with her, and then they broke up, and she... <laughs> he made her character in his movie? Yeah. yeah. That's, uh... uh. Yeah. Uh, and she went off with uh, Ellen DeGeneres, and that's a plot point in the movie, too. The, the, right. The Graham's character becomes a lesbian. It's... I feel like there's a lot of venting in this movie. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. When you make a movie about making a movie, it's like everyone who works on it, all the writers, everybody who's inside of Hollywood is like, oh, I can vent all my frustrations. I can talk about all the things that are inside baseball... And just, like, put them out there with a different name, you know? Right. It's uh, also one of the first movies that I can think of where Eddie Murphy plays multiple roles. I was going to bring that up. I wasn't sure if it was the first. That seemed to be his shtick for a while, right? Yeah, he was like, oh, I kind of like this. And I guess he just started putting on fat suits and went from there. <laughs> um, winning formula. Came yeah. up in that data, I'm sure. Back when, back when Eddie Murphy was, you know, would not just automatically tank a movie just by being in it, basically, you know? Ooh. Ah. Come on. Like, the one where there's, like, there's people inside of his head or something? Right. Meet Dave? Is Meet that what Dave? It's yeah. There was some bad Or Eddie the one Murphy where the, there's the tree in his backyard, and every time... He only has a limited amount of words, and the words oh, are represented yeah. by the leaves on the tree. It's, like, such a high-concept thing. It's hard to even describe... Whereas in this, I thought he was charming. Yeah. He was fine. And you know, what, what I like about this movie is there's, like, all these movies on my list have, like, a precedent for things that come out of, like, actual movie making. The thing I like that this draws on is sometimes directors will manipulate their actors to get them to do something by making something real or, or trying to actually scare them or, or, you know, not tell them what's going on until they've actually done the thing. Uh, you know, I think of, like, Charlie Sheen in Apocalypse Now was, like, really breaking down on camera. Martin Sheen. Martin Sheen, thank you. Charlie Sheen, Charlie Sheen, shot. Charlie Sheen broke down way later. Um, um, but like, there was the, that story that came out about Last Tango in Paris last year. Marlon right. Brando like assaulted a, his co-star on screen, and the director was like, "Arguably, part of it is a little that, that one's a controversial one." Don't, well, totally. I mean, yeah. the, but like, if this happened, if Bowfinger the plot had happened in right. real life, it would have been super controversial, right? Yes. Like, they drove a man insane. He's standing on the top of the you know uh, telescope tower and like screaming and like. You know, it falls apart. <laughs> um, but it's funny if it's not happening to you. It's very funny. It's, um, yeah. As far as, as Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy goes, it's quite the biting satire. Absolutely. They yeah, both very became sharp. quite family friendly after this in a lot of ways, like Daddy Daycare and Cheaper by the Dozen. But this was one of their last times being truly edgy, I thought. Is that the word opens... Where he's like he's got his hair in the rat tail, and he sees another couple of directors walk by who don't have it, and he reaches back and rips it off, gets a clip on. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. That tells you a lot about the tone of the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's again, it's somebody, some writer somewhere is really venting about the experience of living in Hollywood. Yeah, you, you definitely feel that. Directed um, by Frank Oz, uh, just as a final note, I believe, right? Like, I, yeah. Oh wow, I didn't even yeah. know that actually. Yeah, directed by Bowfinger. Nice. Yeah, he's a, quite the good director. Okay. <laughs> I feel like you'd have to do the whole thing in voices, though, right? <laughs> well, he directed a movie called The Score with uh, Edward Norton and Marlon uh, Brando. Right, right, Hold on, right. we're going and, we're going down a rabbit hole here. Marlon Brando hated him and called him Miss Piggy through the entire shoot and wouldn't would refuse to act if he was in the room. Wow. Yeah. It's the kind of thing you make a movie criticizing Hollywood for. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> All right. All right. Number four. Yeah. So number four is Barton Fink. This is the the Coen Brothers. It's uh, John Turturro, John Goodman. Uh, they wrote this movie in three weeks, apparently. 
And it's a pretty deep movie, right? Like yeah, it was like, again, venting frustrations about what was going on. They were working on Miller's Crossing at the time, and I guess they were having some struggles with dealing with Hollywood through that process. And so they wrote this thing, and like this indie New York playwright comes to L.A. to write a movie and uh, is driven insane by his neighbor, basically. So give us some background on the Coen brothers here, because they're, they're, as far as people in who... Are, love movies and are deep into that thing. They're a big name, but I don't know that they're exactly household names, like Steve Martin and Eddie Murphy. <laughs> sure, I mean, yeah, I, I think the Coen brothers, obviously they work with big stars, but I think that within people who are, like, cinemaphiles, they have a, a, a cachet all their own. Like, I'll see a movie with no stars in it if it's the Coen brothers that wrote it and directed it. They're writer-director, brother team. They've done, um, I'm trying to think of most recent things, Hail Caesar was them. Burn After Reading was them. I mean, Old Brother, Where Art That was a Old while Brother, ago, but that was one of their bigger hits. Yeah, lots of lots of Clooney in that back catalog, for sure. Yeah, um, and they definitely don't they don't skew quite mainstream. Like, a lot of directors these days will do, you know, it's one for me and one for them, where they'll do a real studio movie and then a real personal one. I find with the Coen brothers, there's it's always more personal than commercial. Well, like you said, I mean, they're a name in the business. Right. I'm sure they didn't start that way. Yeah. <laughs> but I think all of their movies kind of have this similar theme of, like, they, they try to make a comment about a type of cinema or a type of story. So, you know, uh, they'll do something that's like a noir film, and then they'll do something that's like a light comedy, and then they'll do a musical, and they're like, you know, they kind of like go back and forth, they're, they're, they're genre fluid, let's say that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, so what are they doing in Barton Fink? Uh, so, I mean, it's just like, uh, I mean, it's a comedy because the characters are so absurd, but it is played very dramatically, like it's, it's very intense, and I, I think it's, uh, it was their chance to talk about high culture, low culture, you know, the, the guy who's driving him crazy is this very kind of like... You know, small town salesman kind of guy. He's like the blue collar salt of the earth. Salt of the earth. That's what I was looking for. Thank you. Uh, And then you've got this very East Coast uptight New York playwright kind of guy. And, you know, just the struggles of how they butt up against each other. And I, I imagine that's probably similar to the struggle they were facing. You know, it's art versus commerce, which Hollywood is definitely commerce. Which, you know, adds an extra layer because blue-collar salt of the earth turns out to be a serial killer, right? John Goodman is, is a villain in a lot of the Coen Brother movies. Yes. He, he always gives really interesting, dark performances right. but, with them. But if you're like, this is the symbol for, like, cool Hollywood writers, and this is the symbol for people who don't agree with us, and they turn out to be vicious murderers. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hmm, okay, a little on the nose, right? <laughs> I have to well, say that... Well, you know, the middle of America kills a lot of intellectual movies in terms of box office. Yeah, <laughs> but I also think that there, are, usually with Coen Brother movies and with this one in particular, there's a lot of layers going on, and we may be viewing it on one level, and it may have a whole other parallel going on in another level that we're not even aware of. I mean, that's sort of been a problem for me personally when I watch Coen Brother movies. I never feel like I'm getting the full picture. I don't. I feel like I'm not smart enough to be grasping everything that they're putting on screen, and so I've had a, a sort of a love hate thing with them. And that's what I found with this movie. I've only seen it the once, but it was it it, it it just was going over my head. And I, obviously, that's my problem and not theirs. But I, all I'm saying is, it may not be as cut and dry, anti uh, blue collar as it sounds. Okay, all right, fair enough. I'll, I'll accept <laughs> that defense. I mean, it's art, right? You're going to respond to it, however you respond to it. Right. That's uh, it. It, it means whatever it means to you. Um, I just feel like that one is a little on the nose. Rega- like, regardless of what other layers are beneath that onion, it's, eh, I don't know. You know, but I think, I think John Turturro's character in the movie also, uh, he kind of, like, goes seeking out adversarial positions. Like, he always kind of feels like he's at odds with everyone. 
Sort of like a Larry David and Kirby Enthusiasm? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, he's, not, real life. <laughs> he's not so much of a curmudgeon, but like, you know, I, you know, when he has his meetings in Hollywood with his sort of different people and stuff like that, there's always this feeling of like, they're all kind of like shouting at him and he's just like, oh, you know, he kind of shrinks. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, he doesn't sort of engage. Uh, right, so, so he's, mean, not, he's, he's not exactly depicted as like a, a great heroic figure either. Right. No, he's not, he's not, you know, trying to be a paragon and John Goodman's trying to take him down. He's just trying to like, you know, go into a cocoon basically. Mm. Uh, on to number three? Number three. All right, number three. I love this movie. Discovered in high school, uh, Shadow of the Vampire. It's, again, one of these sort of underappreciated movies, I feel. It's the sort of thing, I don't actually own a copy of it, but... Whenever it's on TV and I catch it on, that's that's my afternoon done. I have to wherever it is in the movie, I gotta finish it out because it's so good. Yeah, it's it's beautifully shot, beautifully acted. It's uh, Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich. Um, the movie is for those of you who don't know, it's a, basically a movie about making arguably the first biggest, most popular like vampire movie. Uh, it was from about a movie made in the 1920s called Nosferatu. And the main actor in Nosferatu, for real, was this, like, crazy method German actor who would stay in character on set. Uh, No one would see him out of his makeup as a vampire. And so, naturally, there were these kind of stories that would spread around. Like, oh, you know, did they get a real vampire to play a vampire? And and so that's what this movie supposes. It's, It's basically, what if a real vampire was cast to play the first big movie vampire? Uh, and how would that unfold and the chaos that would happen on set? It's great because it's it's a great look at the behind-the-scenes making of this silent film at the same time with this other layer of there being this real danger to the entire cast and crew from this actual vampire. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a horror movie about making a horror movie. Yeah. But there's <laughs> hilarious stuff in it. It's, it's Yeah, you have moments where they're talking about the mundane things of like making a movie it's like oh can you just move over to find your light or whatever it is and it's like but you're talking to a real vampire you're trying to like oh make sure you face the camera and like you know it's a vampire it's a real vampire he doesn't know about staging or where to stand on set or how to you know play to the camera and of course the the great thing about it is there's a parallel monster which is the director who's who's the only one on set who knows that it's a real monster uh and he's willing to put everyone else in danger for the betterment of his movie like the movie is everything yeah which apparently is not what the actual... Murnau? Murnau? Yeah, F.W. Murnau. Which apparently is not what he was actually like. Apparently he was a pretty nice guy as far as movie directors go. Um, but yeah, the character in this movie, yes. making this movie, which is not this movie, this movie, <laughs> it gets stuck in these loops. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a question of who's worse. Because the, the cast of the first movie start to figure it out towards the end right it's the lead actress who like freaks out when she sees he has no reflection that yeah it's, it's, yeah by the end scene he has to drug the actress to like make her seem like she's sleeping in a scene so that she can, he can shoot the final scene of his movie he, like the director it, it gets pretty dark and messed yeah, up yeah there's the early parts there's these laugh out loud lines but by the end it's all very unsettling what what is happening to these people yeah and i mean you know the the vampire like if it's a real vampire he's just doing what comes naturally to him you know what I mean like somebody bleeds in front of him he's gonna want that you know what I mean but the director is making a choice he's like I you know won't sacrifice anything for my realism I wanna I wanna have my crew in danger I don't care it's like I have to get my shot you know he's watching someone being killed and he's rolling the camera and going yes this is good we're getting it which is also how it ends when they, they finally manage to kill the vampire Right, I think that's one of the last things that happens in the in the movie. If it's not the last shot, 
We're we, don't, we don't have to say spoiler alert anymore, do we? No, this is an old movie. <laughs> okay. Cool. All right. No, and the the slogan of the show is now officially spoiler alert. Got it. So okay. We're, we're yeah, there. yeah. I mean, the last line of the movie is is he's staring at this scene unfolding of the vampire dying, and he he says, "I think we have it." Right. And it's like <sighs> it doesn't matter anything else. It's that line. It's we have the shot. That's all that matters to him, and delivered with. Ooh, Gravitas by John Malkovich. This wonderful, like, dead-eyed stare. I think one of the the great things about it is the cast is full of great character actors. You know, the main characters are played by John Malkovich and uh, Willem Dafoe, who are fantastic and usually don't get these starring parts. But there's also Eddie Izzard and Carrie Elwes and and just more uh, actor, actor, actor that you've seen deliver these great performances and other stuff get these strong supporting roles in this and they they make the most out of them. It makes every scene uh, a joy to watch. Yeah, I, I think mean, maybe I'm overselling it. But I man, think there's I something like fun movie. for actors to be able to play like a capital A actor in a movie. You know what I mean? Especially with the silent era where they can act really big, mm-hmm. it becomes more pantomime and, and more you know grandiose. I think there's something fun for actors to be able to to explore that other side. One of the things I, I really remember strongly about it from even the first time I saw it was something I had never considered before with silent films. While the scene is going on, the director was telling them what they're thinking and how they're behaving. And like, oh, you're not going to cut your finger and, and stuff like that. It's just like, it, it was such a different way of thinking about filmmaking yeah. than what it's like now with talkies. Yeah, imagine like you're an actor. You just walk out on stage and then you just wait for somebody to yell at you and you just do whatever they say. Yeah. It's just a bizarre way to work, but that was once, it. Once again, it sounds like every day of my professional. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that weird. Okay, before we move on, quick question. Maybe not quick. So let's say I'm, I, like, I'm sort of like, I, I, I don't watch a lot of movies. I'm listening to this podcast. Well, that sounds cool. Should I also watch Nosferatu? Or can this be watched in a vacuum? You can watch it in a vacuum. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. You have to understand like the context that it was a, a real movie. I think, I think the, that it gives yeah, value to definitely. it, but I don't think you need to see the real movie. In fact, it might be better if you don't. Nosferatu is pretty slow. Yeah. And, and being uh, that it was the 1920s, like, you know, at the time, everyone's like, it's a real vampire. But you watch it now, and you're like, well, that's very clearly not no, a real no, vampire. I've seen real vampires. <laughs> but you know what I mean, though. It's like, it's the best special effects 1922 had to offer. Right. Yeah, yeah, you have to be very understanding except Nosferatu. But no, if it stands on its own, again, I don't know because I saw Nosferatu first in a high school class. And then I, th- I probably watched this on one of your recommendations, actually. So I didn't get the, I don't know what it would be like coming from the other way around. I think I think it will, it will be fine to watch it the other way around. Yeah, I don't know. Right. I don't think I'd seen the original before I saw this movie. But the original's got an amazing backstory, too. Like, it's, I, would, I mean, I won't go into it too much, but, you know, it was originally supposed to be about Dracula, and at the time they were making it, I think Bram Stoker was still alive, and he wouldn't let them get the rights to it. So it's it's Dracula, just called Nosferatu, but it is, like, beat for beat Dracula. Yeah. Anyway. Okay, fair enough. All right, number two. Number two, uh, this is one that I watched. I was probably in diapers the first time I watched this movie. Uh, Singing in the Rain. Yeah, good memory. I said probably because I. Okay. I'm not sure, but let's put it this way: like I've watched that movie easily twenty times in my life. This is interesting because I saw it for the first time a couple of years ago. Like I, I did. We definitely grew up in very different households, but I. It, so we had very different experiences watching it. You go first. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you're young, you're just kind of like, oh, they sing a lot of songs, and that guy falls over a couple times. It's pretty funny. But basically, this is a movie about the transition from the silent film era to the talking era. Uh, Like, the movie The Jazz Singer, which is the first film with synchronized dialogue, is a plot point in this movie. 
the studio that they're working at, which is a fictional studio in the thing, uh, goes, oh my god, they just came out with the jazz singer. We have to make our own talkie. We have to take all our science film stars and put them into talking pictures. Uh, the problem is, one of their biggest stars has a horrible, nasal, disgusting voice that they just can't work with. So they dub over her voice with another actress, this young ingenue, uh, who nobody knows. And hilarity ensues, basically. So yeah, it's, it's a movie about making movies. It's the first movie I watched where I understood a little bit of how movies are made. Because in the movie, there's a scene where they're putting the microphones on the actors. And the microphones, in this case, are like, you know, it's like a hockey puck. Right. These are big microphones. They're hiding it in flowers and trying to, you know, they're all running back to these giant cameras inside blimps. Like, it was the first time I saw movie making and, and the trickery of it displayed in a movie for me. Um, so it was really formative. So you were talking about movies essentially as a technical manual. <laughs> it was a blueprint for your life. Slightly outdated one, but regardless. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was just like, it was just like they're, here they are running around and having fun making a film and singing songs. And I was like, well, that looks like a really good time. And then I realized that real filmmaking has very few singing and dancing numbers. <laughs> right. Um, Unless you're Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Unless or, you're Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> or in Bollywood. There you go. That too. I guess I'm in the wrong country. This movie is, the AFI calls it one of the fifth greatest American motion pictures of all time. It's in the Library of Congress. This is like a, confirmed as an important movie to cinema, basically. So why is that? I mean, I get, like, I mean, it's, it's certainly well-performed, a well-put-together movie, but what is it that sort of elevates it to that level, that makes it, you know, like a, a touchstone? I mean, I, I, the performances, first of all, are wonderful. The cast is great. I think the set design is incredible. I, I think, like, every craft that goes into the making of a movie that you can have goes into this movie and, and, and does it in a way that's outstanding. I mean, you have to also consider there's a certain element of it's a historical picture in a way. Like, it's a, it's hmm. a movie from the 50s, I guess, right? It's 50s? I think so, yeah. Yeah, a movie from the 50s about making movies in the... 52. In the like you know twenties thirties basically, so it's it's we we're looking back on it in two ways. It's like we're looking back on it as a movie from the fifties, but it's also about a movie from the twenties. So we're getting insight into two different eras, or at least into how one era viewed another era. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about meta? Yeah. The last scene in this film is they like the two love interests kiss each other, and there's a billboard for a new movie that's about to come out from the studio called Singing in the Rain. Well, so this movie goes, like, it's an inception of a movie. It goes into another movie, into another movie, and then the end of this movie is the making of the movie that you just watched. Yeah. Now, I have to say, where it lost me when I watched it, and again, I saw it for the first time as an adult male who is not typically into musicals, is there's a whole semi-surreal dance sequence that happens with the... In the soundstage. In the soundstage. And he's like, it, it's, it's a... You know, there's a, it's no, there's no dialogue. It's just a dancing around. There's all this stuff happening, and it's it's a heightened reality. And that's where it lost me. Where I was like, I don't quite get what's happening here. It's not it doesn't feel like the same movie to me. It feels like it's from an art film, and it's just in there, and then it goes back to being. An I almost movie compare again. it to like. I mean, I don't know how you felt about La La Land, being that you're not apparently a musical fan. But uh, <laughs> I like La La Land. There's a scene in La La Land where they're they're in the planetarium. They float up into the into the stars and they're dancing. That same thing, heightened reality, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you know we're inside their heads and how they feel in this moment. So here's this young actress who you know is dancing at parties for money. That's how she's making her money right now. She can't make it as an actress, and then suddenly she has this opportunity and she comes into this soundstage and he's trying to show her the magic of movies and how they can take you to another place. Okay. And so basically, it's going inside of her. Her imagination is running wild with the possibilities of what her future could hold for her. I guess I just needed spelled out for me a bit better. Yeah, you, you seem to open your heart a little, Graham. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Well, let's before we run out of time, let's move on to number one because I want to talk about this one because even I love this movie and I'm not a movie guy. So we talked about a movie inside of a movie, and at the end they're making the movie, the movie that you just watched. If that isn't meta enough for you, I've got number one adaptation. Yeah. Uh, Charlie Kaufman, the master of meta narratives, basically wrote this film. <laughs> He's the star of the movie as well. He was, like, set to adapt a novel, a nonfiction book. And instead of adapting the book, he put himself into the story. So the movie is the mo- is about him trying to write a movie, which is the movie that you're watching. Which almost sounds like a cop-out in a way. Like, it, it, it sounds like he couldn't come up with some things we decided to just write about himself. But he actually makes it really fascinating. Well, that's the interesting thing about it is, like... He comes. He created a character for himself. It's not really him. Right. The version of Charlie Kaufman who stars in this movie is not the real Charlie Kaufman. In fact, he emphasizes that by giving himself a fictional twin brother. And having Nicolas Cage play him. Yeah. Uh, Sir Nicholas. Sir of the Cage. <laughs> but yeah, who plays it, like, especially with the twin brother, a little yeah. goofy. But, but so much, like, and what those characters do affect how the movie, like the movie that we're watching, is shot and things that happen. Yeah. And as he comes to realize things in the story, those things start to insert themselves into the film. You know, like when he suddenly goes like, you know, movies don't always have happy endings. Then the movie starts to have like an end, like, you know, like all the things that he's, all the assumptions about movie making that he's changing over the course of the film start to happen in the movie right. I mean, as of, he discovers them. One of my favorite things is that there's a voiceover, an internal monologue through a lot of it, and then there's a point where he's in a screenwriting class and the person, the, Robert McKee, says, God help you if you have a voiceover. And he just like tears the idea of voiceover apart, and then you never hear the voiceover again for the rest <laughs> of the movie. It's brilliant. I love this movie. And, I mean, I'm going to get into a critical space here. I, I, it's Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones is the director. And I feel like Spike Jones is able to finesse the narrative better. Because Charlie Kaufman has since gone on and directed other stuff. And it's just, it's wild. I, I don't like it. And I, I think he needs someone to, like, just put him back on track a little bit more. He needs, he needs to be Focus reined more. in through the vision of another director. Absolutely. Yeah. I agree with you there. He needs um, to be George Lucas. Yes. Oh, my God. George Lucas. The whole other conversation. Whole other conversation. <laughs> but same idea, right? Like he's, he's got good ideas. He's replaced. But he needs somebody to like take them and put them into a movie-sized box. Right. In a movie-sized shape. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had things like Synecdoche, New York, which I think was Charlie Kaufman's first directorial debut. And it was... Uh, it was like insane. It was like going inside of a fractal, basically. Yeah. It was this movie, and it just kind of started to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but adaptation is fantastic. The characters from the book he's adapting start to interact with him as the writer, and it all just kind of blurs together. It's just so satisfying to watch. Yeah, that moment, like the voiceover moment for you, that moment for me is that when the twin brother... Like, the other story that the twin brother is a doofus, but is getting really successful like writing schlocky movies... And the Charlie Kaufman character finally goes, okay, twin brother, come help me with this movie. And then all of a sudden it becomes like a crime thriller. Right. Yeah, but, it becomes an action movie and they're running through a swamp and being shot at. Yeah, like the movie we're watching. The, yeah. but, like, but that level of the meta, oh, I loved that when I was... like, It almost feels like a cheap trick now. Like, now that I'm, like, I can recognize when it happens. But it's a brilliant trick. Yeah, but I loved it when it happened. You know, yeah. the thing about Charlie Kaufman is every movie he makes, it's like, oh, that's such a great idea, but you can only ever do it once. And he did it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like The Matrix where we saw that bullet time effect and then for the next 10 years every movie yeah. had bullet time in it. A Charlie Kaufman movie happens and you're like, oh, that's so great. No one can ever touch that again. 
he has done such a good job. Any other movie that's like this would just be like, oh, bleh, bleh. oh, it's like that movie adaptation. Have you seen that? We should go see that movie. Yeah, yeah, we could just watch adaptation again, and it would just be better than anything else anyone could try to do. To add further to the meta level of this, he, the credit in the movie for the the writer credit is Charlie and Donald Kaufman. Even though Donald Kaufman doesn't exist, yes, that's and right. They won the Oscar for best uh, adapted screenplay. And so there's a, a, an Oscar for a fictional person because they have to give it to the credited writers. That's right. Wow. Yeah, yeah because Charlie Kaufman actually registered the other name with the Writers Guild <laughs> as like a gnome de plume, basically. Right. That's really? Funny. It's just like, ugh. As an aside, the in the story in, in and in real life, the story he was trying to adapt the orchid thief. Yeah. Does anyone actually know anything about that? Just what's in the movie. It's a yeah, I only know what exists in the film. I think I saw I read an interview with the woman who's book was adapted and she was like well I really didn't know what to expect but they brought me out and they, he explained it to me over a long period of time and I <laughs> gradually kind of went okay so you're putting yourself into my book about orchids <laughs> like, like right. eventually she kind of got on the idea that this wasn't going to be an adapt- adaptation of her book you know, I she's like, I get it. This is not about me mm-hmm. anymore. But I think it took some getting used to. I feel like if I were her, I'd be like, well, at least Meryl Streep is playing me. I, I can live with it. Yeah, I suppose. You work <laughs> yeah, but really he also he and... also doesn't do a good job. Like, he portrays her as, like, a drug addict. Right, that's true. Like, she doesn't come off looking great. She's the one in the, in the like, the swamp shouting, go get them and kill them. Right. Well, that's the what the Donald wrote that stuff. <laughs> right, that's not. That was a Charlie. <laughs> but, like, you know, Donald, like... Charlie Kaufman knew what he was doing. Donald's not a real person. She's the real person in this story who exists in the real world that is like, you know, she but had I, to agree with what was happening. I feel like if you get what's what the movie is telling you, you also get that that's not really what... I feel like her name is like Susan Oleander or something. I, I feel like we understand that that's not really what she's like. Definitely. But, I mean, yes, that's true. But if you're the person who wrote a book and somebody said, Charlie Kaufman wants to make a movie of your book... And you go, oh! and he comes to you and says, it doesn't actually have anything to do with your book. It's actually all about me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but from the guy who brought you Being John Malkovich, a movie where John Malkovich starred John, like was yeah. John Malkovich, and you could go inside of his head. <laughs> the other John Malkovich. Yeah. You have to, you have to cer- accept a certain amount of weirdness knowing that Charlie Kaufman's going to come on board. Anyway. Anyway. Way off topic. Adaptation. Phenomenal. Definitely. Uh, so that's kind of my list. Movies about making movies. Uh, last plug, watch Bricks Without Clay, a, a web series idea about making movies. Where can we find it again? It's on YouTube. Uh, search Bricks Without Clay. It's on Facebook, facebook.com slash Bricks Without Clay. Uh, like it, watch it, share it, please. And uh, hopefully we can find that money to make the real show. And while people are checking that out, you've done a lot of other cool stuff over the years. There are other places people where can people go to check out your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of what I do is TV commercials, but uh, everything I'm working on is always over at braddwarkin.com. I was going to do like HTTP colon right. slash slash. Like, we don't have to do that anymore, do we? <laughs> no. Just braddwarkin.com. Check it out. Uh, and yeah, send me a message if you want to say hey. Red, we'll be sure to link it onto the post as well. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. Special thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. And, of course, special thanks to our crew, to Stella Simeonova, our webmaster, who gets all of this from us to you, and to Jamie Reum, our musician-in-chief. That's R-E-A-U-M-E. Check him out on YouTube at Jamie Reum Official, and check out his podcast, Originals and Covers and Beyond. think it's getting a new name soon. We'll let you know when that goes through, but all the cool music stuff we don't usually get to get into, that's where you can find it. 
Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to hear what you think about Brad's stuff. Uh, a lot of it's pretty cool, and we do want to sort of promote his show. So if you want to reach out and uh, share your feelings and with the rest of the Geek Top 5 community, or just with, with the hosts, we're always happy to hear from you. Uh, all kinds of ways you can get a hold of us. You can go to geektop5.com and leave a comment on an episode or anywhere on there. You can email us at geektop5 at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. We're on Twitter at geektop5. And you can also rate us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. You know, five stars is never a bad thing. And we won't turn down five stars, that's true. (laughs) In any case, this has been Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again in just a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.